If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew today. Near the end, Matthew 26, we're going to look at the second half of that. So uh, I did not grow up observing uh, what we call the church calendar, Um, but I've gotten to where I found it useful. Later in life, it's been helpful to me. Uh, As a matter of fact, if you... when I was growing up, we thought of the church calendar, this, you know, Lent and Advent and Epiphany and all of these other days that weren't Christmas and Easter. Uh, I looked at them, they lived in the same place in my brain as the, like a Ouija board, you know? Like, it's like, uh, we, we knew people who had messed with it and they seemed okay, but you know, maybe that's how the devil gets you, you know? I don't know. So uh, it kind of, I was just treated with a great suspicion, uh, but I found later in life as I've learned kind of more about it, it's helpful because our lives have rhythms anyway, right? Like there's an annual rhythm. Uh, just in the South, right? The annual rhythm is football season, you know, right? Rolls right into the whole month of Christmas, right? And then... Uh, you know, spring break, then summer slash waiting for football season, right? Like that's the rhythm. It affects traffic. It affects how you spend money, how you spend your time. Like those are our natural rhythms, but those rhythms typically increase anxiety and financial burden, right? Uh, Whereas the rhythm of the church calendar, it's just a helpful tool that the church has found helpful uh, for centuries because, millennia, because it follows the life of Christ. And so we're entering this last week, we're coming out of the season of Lent, which is a season that focuses on something we're naturally not going to just gradually drift into, which is our mortality and our sin, right? We're not going to naturally just spend time thinking about that. And so Lent is a season where we focus on that because the Bible says it's foolish. There's no way to live a wise life if we don't consider that our days are limited and how we spend them. And so about, it's helpful for wisdom. And so we're in this season focusing on this really heavy stuff preparing us for the celebration that comes next week. But this week we will focus on the passion of Christ, the cross. Today's Palm Sunday. It's the day that Jesus enters. When we have these, uh, the grass in the seats, uh, it's the day that Christ entered Jerusalem. Uh, in some of the gospels, it says, like earlier in his ministry, that he set his face towards Jerusalem, knowing he was going to go there to die. And today is the day that we remember him entering into the city. Uh, palms actually weren't like the people uh, surrounded him, like they, they picked up palm leaves and, and were waving them uh, to celebrate him as king. Uh, um, and that's not the symbol, though, that Jesus picked for that day. He picked a donkey, right? He comes riding into the city on a donkey, not a warrior, warrior's ride, right? Not, 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 a, not a giant horse, but a humble beast of burden. And... That's how he, the symbol he picked for the day. But the people picked up these, these palm fronds and were, and were praising him like he's the king. This is our guy. This is our guy. Um, but I don't think they really understood yet what that meant, right? What kind of king he was going to be. And so uh, we just still remember the day. One, it's fun to see kids with palms, uh, but also to remind ourselves that we honor him as king. Right? That's the week that we're about to enter into, this week of Holy Week. It involves uh, days like Palm Sunday, uh, Monday, Thursday, which is about the commandment. Right? Monday kind of means, comes from an old word that means commandment. When Jesus gave the commandment in the upper room to love one another as I have loved you. Good Friday is the day that we mark his crucifixion and death. And then Holy Saturday or Quiet Saturday. And then we will celebrate next Sunday on Easter. And I cannot wait. Uh, but we still have today, which is good too, right? So um, I've been thinking about a lot about, I think about this all the time, the things that we want. Um, because it dictates so much of what we do, right? Um, 
I, before I did this, uh, and still uh, as a kind of a hobby, uh, I get to do engineering work. I'm an engineer. Uh, and uh, I remember why I picked engineering. They said to me, you should be an engineer. And I said, yeah, okay, whatever. And that's how I became an engineer. Uh, I just showed up and did the classes, and they gave me a degree, right? I, uh, uh, but the first question I asked when they said you should be an engineer, I didn't just say, okay. What I said was, how much do they make? Right? That was the first question. was like, how much do they make? And they were like, it makes this much. I'm like, that's probably enough. It'll be good. Because I had things that I wanted, right? So what I picked in school was dictated by what I wanted. And at that time, and for a very long time, what I wanted was uh, a Toyota Land Cruiser. That's what I wanted. I wanted a Toyota Land Cruiser, and I wanted uh, roof racks on top of it where I could put bikes, right? Specifically a specialized M2 stump jumper. That's what I wanted so bad. I also wanted all this camping gear. I had very specific things that I wanted, and I thought being an engineer would get me all those things. And so it, it dictated what I did. What we want, the things that we love, drive us, right? I don't want any of those things anymore, right? It changes as you get older, right? Um... I was thinking about what I want the other day, and what I want, uh, uh, you know what I want? I want a sailboat. Not a nice sailboat, like, not like a, like a yacht. I just want like a boat that I could like just put offshore. I could still see shore. I don't want to be where I can't see land. But just, you know, with a guitar and a book, you know what I mean? Or I think I also want one of those teardrop campers, not an RV. I don't want to be that guy, but I do, I think I want a teardrop, something that I can just back my truck up to on a Tuesday and hook it up and just drive off, you know, be like, I'm out of here. It's already packed, ready to go. And I can just go camp, go somewhere where there's no cell phone, cell phone signal. That'd be amazing. Or you know what else I want? I was watching, I was reading this spy book the other day. I don't know why I want this, but I want a, I want a safety deposit box that just has like cash from different countries in it, you know? like passports, you know, and a gun. I don't know why. I don't know why. I don't need any of that stuff. But for some reason, like, you see that, and you're like, that's what I need. Every time I see a movie, that, that, like Jason Bourne, I'm like, that's what I need. I don't, why don't I have a safety deposit box with random stuff that would get me to another? Oh, no. Why do all the things that I want look like I'm trying to disappear? One day I'm going to go missing, and none of you are going to look for me. You're like, It's happening. It changes as we get older, as we go through life, different things happen, what we want, but the things that we want so often drive us. And I think this passage today, well, it speaks a lot about that. Um, there was this quote um, at the beginning of a book called You Are What You Love. Uh, he, uh, these little, what they call epitaphs, right? These, these quotes kind of at the bo- beginning of a book that kind of sit as a heading or kind of an appetizer for what is about to come. Uh, and one of the quotes uh, is from Augustine, and it says, my weight is my love. Wherever I am carried, my love is carrying me. Isn't that true? Like, where you go, your love carries you. One of the other quotes uh, was this, sometimes the smallest things take up the most room in your heart. It doesn't have to be a big thing. It can be a small thing that carries you. That was, of course, by the theologian Winnie the Pooh. But it's true, right? Like the smallest things, sometimes it, they, have the, they can have more gravity than the big things. And I think that sometimes we spend so much time thinking about the big things when there's really little things in our heart that we love that we won't let go. That's the thing that's carrying us everywhere we go, right? Hurts wounds, right? They can have a lot of gravity. 
desires, passions, how we think the problem should be solved, we can have a lot more gravity. Today's sermon, or today's text, uh, I don't know how much the sermon will help you, but the text will help us see uh, the gravity of the situation. This is the most important week. So let's look at this. Uh, let's read, uh, I'm going to read a ton of it, because I, I love it so much. I'm going to start in verse 36 of uh, chapter 26. Uh, so actually, Jesus is, uh, uh, by the way, he's, uh, they've, they've been in the upper room. This is the last, uh, this is, uh, would have been you know, Thursday night. Uh, he, he's last week of his uh, life, Thursday night. He is in the upper room. Uh, he's talking to these people. Uh, he, the, the disciples have been arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Uh, and Jesus is like, man, you can't, like, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Like, you know, you can't do it. Uh, he, he institutes the Lord's Supper, which we will celebrate at the end of the service. Uh, but uh, Peter says, like, no way, dude. I'll never deny you. There's no way. And uh, Jesus is like, okay. Uh, and uh, then they leave this upper room where they've been having this meal, and they go out to this garden. And this is what happens, verse 36. Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, my God, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. <laughs> and he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and he prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And then he came to the disciples, and he said to them, Sleep, take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And while he was still sleeping, speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seizing. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. So they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching. You didn't seize me. But all this has taken place. The scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest where the scribes and elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. 
Now the chief priest and the whole council was seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward. At least two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said to him, you've said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming from the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his robe and said, he's uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You've now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. I spit in his face and struck him. Some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, who struck you? Peter was sitting outside the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And he went out to the entrance. Another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And he again denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. He went out and wept bitterly. Hmm. How interesting. Uh, It's a fascinating text for so many reasons. Uh, um, I just, I don't know, it's so interesting to see Jesus praying, Right? It's an interesting thing to wrap your brain around, right? Jesus, who is God himself, right? Praying to his father. It's interesting to see him struggling this way and hurting, but he's praying, and what he praises is is fascinating. What What he prays is, I don't want to do this. That's what he prays. The son of God himself, um, in his human condition, laying face down on the ground, dumbfounded before the unfathomable will of God. How can this be? I don't want to do what you're asking me to do. So he prays, he prays what he taught his disciples to pray. Uh, back early in Matthew, uh, Matthew tells us that Jesus, his disciples came to Jesus and said, will you teach us to pray? And Jesus taught them to pray the, the very famous Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy will be done. And Jesus, then in this moment of despair, prays how he taught his disciples to pray. Not what I want, but what you want. But he begins with this very honest cry, I don't want to do what's in front of me. And then he he goes out and he finds his disciples sleeping and then he comes back, he wakes them up and he tells them, hey, watch and pray. And he goes back and and to to the prayer and he prays again to God. And he says, again, hey, but it's changed, right? The first time he says, I don't want to do this. This time he says, he says, please let this cup pass. This time he says, hey, if it's got to happen, I have to drink it, then your will be done. There's this aligning of his heart, right? 
This is what prayer does for us as well. Uh, Prayer for us, I think so often we look at what's difficult in front of us, what God has for us, and we say, we don't like this, I don't want this, this is not what I planned, this is not what I like. And then, then in, as we stay in prayer, as we are continually shaped by prayer, as we continually go to God repeatedly, what we find over time is that his spirit begins to shape our heart to look like his. That's one of the powers of prayer, that we begin to learn obedience, right? This is not some type of being battered around or being iffy. It's going and praying our true desires in front of God, but ultimately what we want, ultimately what we desire is not what we want, right? This is not being wishy-washy, like I'll take this or giving God an out, but if it doesn't happen, then I'm still gonna believe. It's not any kind of, anything like that. It's this 100% honest pouring out of what we desire because sometimes when we pray that, God takes away the thing that we're struggling with, the thing in front of us, but sometimes he doesn't. And so as we continue to pray, what we find is, as we continue to go to God, our Father lovingly begins to shape our hearts, begins to change the thing that we desire to the thing that he desires. And that's what we see Jesus modeling for us in this this passage, learning obedience, learning to desire above what I want, what God wants. That's a tricky thing. A tricky thing. I mean, I'm pretty, I'm, I've gotten better over the years of going like, I don't want this, but whatever you're gonna do, whatever, I'll just struggle through it anyway. That's different than, I don't want what you have for me, teach me to want that. I don't wanna go through this, I don't want this struggle, I don't want any of this, but walk with me as I go through it. It's two different things. And so that's what's happening in this passage, this beautiful picture of our Lord praying. But, Right? There's this, also this weird thing, right? I think I want to imagine Jesus dying, like, very assured and brave. That's not what happens at all. He says in here uh, that he is doesn't understand that uh, his humanity is in full struggle with this. He says that I am suffering and I am so weak and he wants that he wants his com- people to be nearby. He wants his, those closest to him to be nearby. He takes these, 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 the, the, the sons of Zebedee and, and Peter and he takes them with him out into the garden and says, listen, I have to go pray by myself, but I need you near me. Isn't that amazing that Jesus just wanted companionship? That's, listen, I think one of the most, um, in my life, one of the most powerful things that anyone has ever done is weep with me when I was weeping and rejoice with me when I was rejoicing. To be near. And Jesus wants that. He wants his people near. These people who he, Peter and the sons of Zebedee were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw Jesus when the veil was pulled back and he was white and Moses was there and and, and the prophet was there and and they get to see him in his full divinity. And now they get to see him in his humanity. And so they go in this garden and they see Jesus and he, Jesus go further and he, and he bends down to pray and he lays down on his face and he begins to pray and he says to them before, uh, before he goes, he says, listen, I need you to stay here and watch. I am struggling and the grief inside of me is so strong that I think I might die. 
The feeling of so much distress began to fill his mind. The weight of depression so heavy on him that he said, my heart is ready to break because of the grief. Where is this strong Jesus who stood up? Right? Why, why this moment of being unsure? Why this moment of not knowing? How did this happen? And I think the answer is, well, no, I believe this. Jesus is about to face a death like no one's ever faced before. Right, this is not just a crucifixion on the cross. This is a different death. Uh, this is different than that. Others went to the cross. Others went to all kinds of torture uh, without this level of grief. Jesus goes with this level of grief because he's not just going to the cross. He's going to face a death unlike any other. Um, he says, let this cup, what he praises, let this cup pass from me. Uh, so in ancient times, your cup, the cup was uh, what the king handed out, what the king poured out. Uh, specifically in the Old Testament, uh, it talks about the cup being God's wrath and suffering. Uh, so for example, in Psalm 11, uh, it says, let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Or in Isaiah 51, the same word is used. It's used all the place. But wake yourselves, wake yourselves. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. So the idea of this cup that he's supposed to drink, this thing that's supposed to happen on the cross, is not just the physical agony, it's the actual wrath of God against sin poured out on him. That's what he's looking forward to. The reason his grief is so high is no one's ever done anything like this. No one but him could. God's just wrath. So the biblical narrative is, the biblical story tells us, reveals to us that, that our sin has more cost than we think it does, right? The penalty in Genesis says, hey, if you rebel against God, the, the penalty is death. That's what the story is. And so the whole rest of the story is leading up how all of these animal sacrifices, uh, they were very important and they pointed us to a real truth, but they were not sufficient. And we get to the New Testament and it's this one, this one who came, this Christ who is going to suffer and die, this Jesus, that he will suffer and die and that his death will stand in the place for all of us who have faith. That's the deal. So his death is not just a normal death. It is a death facing the wrath of God against all sin poured out on him. So our sin has consequences, right? Our sin has cost. So the wrath poured out on Christ is the wrath against my indifference, Uh, The wrath against my being uh, dissatisfied, my, the wrath against my complaining, my, the wrath against me not loving my neighbor as myself, the wrath of God against me not caring like I should, the wrath of God against my own self-absorption in pursuit of my own self-interest, the wrath of the harm that I've done to those he cared about. Those all have consequences. Those all have cost. Me hurting those who he loves. They are cost. And so this is the death that he is facing. God's just wrath against sin poured out on Christ. This level of suffering. So in the Apostles' Creed we quote, we, there's this line that uh, gives people trouble sometimes, and I understand why. Uh, the line says that he descended into hell. When we say he descended into hell, this is what we mean. 
that Jesus faced the infinite suffering due to sin poured out on him. He suffered that. When we say he descended in hell. Uh, there's this great catechism question. Uh, the Heidelberg Catechism uh, says this. Uh, it says, why is there added he descended into hell? And the answer that is given is this. Uh, in my greatest sorrow and temptation, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, which he endured throughout all his suffering, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. He's delivered us from the anguish and torment of hell, specifically on the cross. What we see here in this garden, in this Gethsemane, and Jesus praying, it's interesting to me. I think of his suffering primarily on the cross. I guess this catechism, this, these question and answer that help us learn, uh, that's what a catechism is. It's just questioning and answering that, that helps us learn. Uh, it points out this thing that Jesus' suffering wasn't just on the cross. And that's what he's facing. He's not just thinking about the physical agony of the cross, but he's, he's looking forward to what's going to happen and it is nearly crushing him. There's this guy, uh, Jonathan Edwards. He was a pastor, probably the greatest American theologian ever lived. Uh, he wrote this amazing, amazing sermon on this passage. And I try to think of a better way to say it, but you know what? He's the greatest living theologian, and I'm not. So, our great, not living, greatest theologian. He's been dead for a while. Uh, greatest theologian. So, I, I'm just going to read you what he wrote about this, about why Christ is facing this now. This is what he said. He said, Christ was going to be cast into the dreadful furnace of wrath, and it was not proper that he should plunge himself into it blindfolded, as not knowing how dreadful the furnace was. Therefore, that he might not do so, God first brought him and set him at the mouth of the furnace that he might look in and stand and view its fierce and raging flames and might see where he was going and might voluntarily enter into it and bear it for sinners as knowing what it was. This view Christ had in his agony. Then God brought the cup that he was to drink and set it down before him that he might have a full view of it and see what it was before he took it and drank it. This moment in the garden is him getting a full view of what is coming. And look, this passage means so much because I... This is all laid before him. All the things that I've done, all the things that I have left undone, the consequences of all of those things laid before him, the consequences and the cost of all those things put in front of him and said, this is where you're headed to see this wrath. And he went willingly. He wasn't arrested and nailed to a cross and then shown. He wasn't arrested and taken and nailed to a cross and then he got to see. No, it was beforehand and he willingly went anyway. I think the reason for this passage is to remind us and to show us the great love that God has for us, the great love that Christ has for us, that he willingly went and took the wrath that was due me, that I owed, and he paid it on my behalf. And he did it for people, because this is too much for me to think about, right? Until I remember that it's nestled in these verses of all of the people that disappoint him, right? I get so bent out of shape. I'm like, how could I ever, how could I ever, how could I ever 
He says another place in this sermon, he says, he does, Jesus could have turned around and looked at God in prayer and said, you want me to go to the cross for these people who can't even stay awake? You want me to go to the cross for these people that are going to betray and abandon me? I, who am worth infinite majesty, you want me to die for them? He could have said that. He knew that was true. And he did it anyway. To go willingly to face what I owed. Peter, uh, I love Peter so much because he's just not right. Uh, Peter, uh, Peter said, listen, I'm going to die for you. I'll never leave you. And then like, there's this hugely brave moment. They've come to arrest him and Jesus is like, they got us outnumbered. Peter's like, well, they got us outnumbered, but like, I'm going to take some of them with me. Like, there's just like a really brave moment where he's like, I'm going to fight this whole you know, army. Uh, and Jesus is like, knock it off, right? Uh, and here's why, right? I think that everybody, everybody that loves Jesus, there just seems to be this constant misunderstanding. If you read through the Gospels, you just see this constant misunderstanding uh, all the way through. Uh, John, John the Baptist, who inter- like Jesus, he's the one that said, I must decrease so Jesus can increase. John the Baptist who said, behold, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist who baptized Jesus reaches a point in his life when he's in prison and he hears what Jesus is doing. And you know what John says? He takes a messenger and he sends a messenger to Jesus and goes like, dude, are you the one or not? Because you're not messiahing right. You're doing it wrong. Peter, who said, confessed in front of Jesus, he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God, the most high. And Jesus is like, you don't even know what you're saying. God has revealed that to you. He turns around to talk to some other people and says, listen, I'm gonna go die. And Peter's like, you gotta stop saying that. And Jesus turns around to Peter, who just said this amazing thing and says, get behind me, Satan. Like everybody seems to believe Jesus is doing these amazing work. Even the crowd, this is the king. This is the guy. He's doing all the things. This has to be the guy. I mean, how can he not be the guy? He walks on water and brings people back from the dead. He casts out demons. He heals people who are sick. How can this not be the guy? And then he keeps talking about dying. And they're like, you got to stop talking about dying. And then he goes and dies. And they're like, must not have been the guy. You're doing it wrong. What Jesus was showing them and what he was teaching them and and what he went and faced was that we live in a world that's upside down than the world that we think we live in. I mean, look at the whole thing. I mean, who did the angels appear to to announce his birth? Just shepherds in a field? Born to a poor, the poor? Who are attracted to Jesus? The outsiders and the ones that no one else accepts? Those are the ones that are attracted to Jesus. He's Listen to the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about who is blessed, the outsider, the marginalized, the meek and the weak. That's who is blessed because I'm here. That's who now has hope because I'm here. Those people who were attracted to Jesus, who came to Jesus, who were the ones that knew they needed Jesus. And he's like, follow me and the way is not the way that you think it is. Because for us, the way is always up and, 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 and up and up and up. And Jesus keeps saying, hey, the way is not the way that you think it is. The way is down. That's what Peter is like. Hey, listen, man, if this is the way, if we got to fight and we got to kill people to get there, I'm willing to die to see you go this way. To see you king, I'll die for you. And Jesus says, I'm not going to king the way that you think I'm going to king. I'm going to die. And Peter's like, that's upside down, man. I don't even know who you are. I don't even know who this guy is, man. 
He's standing in the courtyard afterwards and these people are coming up to him and saying, he's seeing Jesus arrested, going through all this thing, being tried, he's gonna be murdered and people are gonna be killed and all these people are asking him and who is this guy? You were with him, right? And he's like, with that guy? I don't know him. I think he was honest a little bit. Maybe he didn't know it at the time. But the Jesus that I know wouldn't have just gone like that. The Jesus that I had in my mind, he was gonna be king and rule, not be arrested and tried and spit on. I don't know that, Jesus. And he's teaching us, he's showing us that the world that is to come is so much better than we could dream of. And then he calls us to follow him. Jesus was the worst advertiser ever. People were like, I wanna follow you. And Jesus was like, yeah, you gotta pick up and die to yourself every single day if you wanna come after me. It's a terrible, terrible sign-up slogan. The way up is the way down. Right? The way that you get to where we're supposed to go, the way that the world is supposed to work is the where the poor and the marginalized are brought in and the rich and powerful who fight to have things for themselves. Jesus says, man, they've had their reward, the ones that hold on to, that lie, that pervert, that don't tell the truth, the ones that, that rely on their own power to have things. They've had their time. The time is coming when my kingdom comes when you will lay down your, lay down your life to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the way the world's supposed to work. The weak and the marginalized should be great among us. Why? That's the way the world's supposed to work. And we struggle and we fight and we claw so often to have the things that we want, that we think will make us happy. And Jesus says, hey, listen, I think you're going the wrong way. The way to what you want, the way to the kingdom, the way to what I have is to sacrifice and give and love. He says crazy things like love your neighbor as yourself. That's the way of the kingdom. He says crazy things like love your enemy. Crazy. He says crazy things like you are a child of God by believing in me. Crazy things. I believe crazy things like if I work hard enough, he'll love me. He says, nope, that's not the way. The way is I love you. And when you see how much you love me, you will take joy in honoring me. The cross shows us that the way the world works is not the way we thought it would. It's not the way that it seems to. It's not how it looks. There's something else going on behind the scenes where God is moving. Jesus is bringing about this kingdom. And then he says, you follow me and you will be about bringing the kingdom about, and your lives will be about bringing this kingdom as well. And we go and we love. So now that we have hope that these things are true, that this is the way the world works, we put our faith in Christ and we have this hope that this is not all we have, that there's so much more that will go on in eternity. And then we are able to turn around and forgive because we've been forgiven. You know why it's so hard to forgive? Because we haven't gotten what we deserve, right? It's so hard to forgive because this person wounded me. I did not deserve what they did to me. That's why it hurts so much. That's why it's so hard to forgive. Look at the consequences of what they've done in my life. All that they did, I've talked to people that have just had just terrible experiences growing up, terrible home life, just awful, awful experiences, and they struggle to forgive, and I can't imagine what they're going through. They struggle to forgive because look what has happened in my life because of what these people did to me. I haven't gotten what I should have gotten. I haven't gotten what I deserved. And you know what? That might be true. But the way is not to hold on to anger. The way is to fight, to go constantly to God and say, I don't want to forgive, but whatever you want, move my heart. But I don't want to forgive, but whatever you want. I don't want to forgive. Change my heart. Teach me to forgive. 
And he moves in us as we grow in this relationship. He changes us. We are able to forgive because we look at the cross and go, you know what? Yeah, I've been forgiven. Jesus taught them to pray. He says, forgive my trespassers. Teach me to forgive my trespassers as those who have trespassed against me. We forgive because we're forgiven. We learn to pray because we need it. And we learn to pray and wait, not just because we need it, because you know what? I need it. I need your prayers. We need each other's prayers. We need each other nearby to make it through what God has in front of us because it's not going to be easy every step of the way. We learn to pray how Christ prayed. And we learn to love how he loved. Again, Edwards, the first, uh, his sermon. I should have just printed out his sermon for you guys this morning. Uh, Edwards' uh, sermon, uh, he says that... uh, Humanity fell because the first Adam took from a tree. Humanity is restored because Christ looked at a tree in the wrath to come on that tree and went willingly anyway. By faith in him, we are united to him in his death. And next week, we will celebrate that also in his resurrection. Let's pray. Father, what goodness we have in Jesus. Heavy to consider the sin, to consider the cost, to consider the price. But so good to know that we can have life and forgiveness, that we are not defined by what we've done, The worst thing that we've ever done does not define us, but who we are in Jesus does. The best thing I've ever done does not define me, but who I am in Jesus. That I'm a child of God, not because I've earned it or it is owed, but because Jesus looked at the cross and the wrath of God and went willingly in my place. A thing that I could have never done. That we have life and we have hope that we can forgive and that we can love, that we can be about bringing about your kingdom when we begin to live in kingdom ways. Knowing that we die to ourselves, and that is the way of the kingdom. That we learn to not take what we could get for ourselves, but instead take what you've given us and turn and give to others of our time, of our resources, of our attention and our affection to love others how you have taught us to love. Not because of what we get out of it, but because of what we have received from you. Teach us to love that way. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen.